Today, we hope to hear from him in the passage in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 14 to 29. If you turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 9, verse 14 uh, to 29. And as you're turning there, I'd love to give just another brief update to you this week about the coming fall and winter season. We're formalizing and putting together plans uh, for our live gatherings uh, outdoors at Calvary Monterey. Of course, the weather isn't as great in the fall and winter as it is in the summertime here uh, on the church campus, but we are blessed with a great place to be able to continue uh, to meet in an unconventional and flexible kind of way. So it just is what it is, and we are going to try our hardest uh, to still retain that gathering together uh, no matter what. So if you'd like to gather live uh, on the church campus at 9 or 11 or any other service time that we end up unfolding in the months to come, uh, please come on out. But this is not the only way that God's people can gather during this time. I'm sure that some of you have noticed that even when you're watching the online service, it is beneficial to watch in tandem with others. I've even heard of some uh, life groups who have uh, gotten together online uh, from their own homes, but have together simultaneously watched the service and then afterwards had a time of uh, prayer requests and fellowship uh, in that digital distanced kind of way. And of course, I'm sure many of you are conscious of others who are even gathering together at times safely uh, with those who are in their circle or in their sphere uh, to get in the word together. And that might also be a way to gather together, to sit in a living room uh, with those that you love and to turn on the uh, broadcast and to get into the word and to worship the Lord together. So uh, we've got life groups and different ways for us to gather together during this season, but it's going to require and take some intentionality on each of our parts, whether it's the live gathering or whether it's uh, connecting with others in the online stream. We're going to have to really work hard to protect the gathering together of God's people uh, during this season. Uh, I would like to also invite you but, but real quickly before I get into the Mark teaching today uh, to the Genesis series on Tuesday nights. Uh, this coming Tuesday night will be in Genesis 35 through 37, so starting to get into the story of Joseph's life. And we've been having a great time on Tuesday nights going through the book of Genesis. And of course, you don't need to be available on Tuesday night to be able to catch it. Uh, you can grab it anytime after it's posted on Tuesday, uh, whether you grab it at YouTube to watch it, wherever you listen to podcasts to listen to it, nateholdridge.com to get the archive and the notes and transcript of it. I just encourage you to follow along with us in the word. I just think that these are important times for God's people to press into the transformation of the mind uh, as we allow the word of God to do its perfect work in renewing our minds. Okay, today we're in Mark chapter 9, verse 14 to 29, in a message I've called Jesus Enters Our Mess. And what we're going to see in this story today is Jesus coming into a chaotic scene. 
complete with a demon-possessed boy, a father who desperately wants to see his son delivered, and disciples who are powerless to do anything about this boy's plight. And this episode, of course, is going to provide us with a significant contrast to the episode that we studied last week in the Mount of Transfiguration. Every gospel writer is careful to put these two stories together, which indicates to us that they wanted us to see the contrast. Peter, James, and John felt this contrast. They lived this contrast, and they want us to feel it as well. On the mountain, the power of the kingdom of God was on full display. But in the valley, the power of the kingdom of Satan was on full display. On the mountain, the Son of God radiated with the glory of God. And in the valley, the Son of this Father radiated uh, with the reality of Satan's destruction. On the mountain, the Father God speaks highly of his Son. And in the valley, we're going to see a Father who speaks with horror about his demon-possessed Son. On the mountain, Moses and Elijah are there. Remember them? They show up encouraging Jesus. In the valley, the religious leaders will gather to argue with the disciples. On the mountain, the disciples caught a glimpse into the glory of eternity. In the valley, though, they interacted again with the pain of the real world. And this whole story helps us remember, brothers and sisters, that we are not called to live on the mountain, at least not right now. One day, after our great and final resurrection from the dead with Jesus, if you're a believer in Christ, all those who have trusted him for rightness with God will enjoy glory, heaven, and the kingdom to the absolute fullest. But right now, we are meant for this world, the difficulty, tragedy, difficulty, that this world has to offer. We're meant for the brokenness and pain that this planet swims in. We are called, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, ministers of reconciliation. That means we're meant to bring Jesus and his kingdom to bear in our everyday environments. You see, in this story that we're about to study, Jesus is training his men. The whole scene, like I said, was real life. As much as they needed mountaintop moments to inspire and refocus them, real life is spent in the valley. So Jesus brought them down the mountain and plunged them into brokenness. He needed, he needed them to learn from him because they would, have, they would run into plenty of valleys in the years to come, and, and so will we. So as we think about Jesus coming down the mountain, going into the valley to do ministry and delivering this son from his demonic oppression, we can ask these questions. What did Jesus do in the valley? What was he teaching his men? How was he building them up, and how does that help us today? The first thing I want you to see is this. Number one, he replaces chaos with flourishing. He replaces chaos with flourishing. Let's read the first handful of verses 
in our passage today. Look at your Bibles or read it along with me on the screen. It says in verse 14, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. What did Jesus find when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, we've already alluded to it, but Jesus found a lot of pain down in this valley. In various forms, Jesus saw a despairing scene. First, notice in verse 14, he saw the disciples and the scribes caught in a heated argument. Now, we don't know what the scribes argued with the disciples about, but we can assume it had something to do with Jesus and something to do with the disciples' powerlessness over the demons that were inside this boy. Now, the crowd, it tells us in verse 15, was amazed. They were surprised that Jesus arrived right at that moment. Perhaps he could settle the argument and perhaps he could help the man. And before Jesus did anything for the father or the boy, Jesus interceded for his disciples. He loved his men, so he stood up for them and he asked the scribes, what are you arguing about with them? Now, before the scribes had a chance to respond, someone from the crowd answered Jesus's question, telling Jesus that he as a father had brought his demon-possessed or demon-influenced child to Jesus, hoping that Jesus could cast out or deliver uh, the, his son from these demons. Now, Jesus wasn't there, though. He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So instead, the father, he says, asked the nine remaining disciples to do the job. And his report of their ability is so straightforward and sad. He says at the end of verse 18, they were not able. If the first thing that Jesus saw was fighting and arguing, the second thing that he saw in this father was desperation. This father loved his son. You know, no parent wants this kind of fate to befall their children. They say that parents are only as happy as their least happy child. And this man's son was in broken despair. So the father grieved as he told Jesus the effects of his son's demons. Which leads us, of course, to the third thing that Jesus saw. First, arguing. Second, desperation. But in the boy, Jesus saw Satan's chaos. His life had been torn in two by the devil's minions. They had done their worst, and Jesus could not help but be moved. Now, before we move on to see what Jesus does in response to the Father, I think we have to take a moment to pause and just take note of the results of Satan's reign, chaos, bickering, 
brokenhearted parents, the destruction of this child. You see, this is how Satan operates. The Bible says that he lies to people, stealing the truth about God from their hearts. Mark 4, verse 15. It says that he binds people in sickness and disease. Luke 13, verse 16. That he comes to steal and kill and destroy. John 10, verse 10. And that he disguises himself as an angel of light, appearing good so that he can deceive many. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, He hinders the expansion of the gospel in our world. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. And he is the great deceiver who binds the nations and stirs people ultimately to war against God. Revelation 20, verse 7. God is not the God of confusion. Satan is the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. You see, the devil loves to foster chaos and confusion. In the Garden of Eden, he planted seeds of doubt in the mind of Eve. In the book of Job, he tried everything to get God's man to curse God. In the life of ancient Israel, he fought to bring idolatry and division into the kingdom. In the Gospels, he motivated Herod to kill the babies in Bethlehem, tried to stop Jesus through temptation, and was the insidious force behind the cross. And after Jesus' death ended up being Jesus' great victory, Satan worked hard to create persecution and pandemonium in every place that the early church preached the gospel. Riots, rumors, and temptation awaited them at every turn, all brought by the wicked hand of Satan. You see, God created a good world, a well-ordered place for us to enjoy him. And we were meant to take the raw material of this planet and subdue it and develop it in obedience to God. We were supposed to build God-fearing societies as we lived out his image here on earth. But Satan doesn't care about us and doesn't care about God's commission upon us. So he sows seeds of discord and confusion. He does everything he can to create chaos, to disrupt the mind of many. And he loves it. He doesn't need to produce consistent worldviews, but he's happy to generate competing ones that put human beings at odds with each other. He loves, he loves chaos. He loves nudging societies towards a godless and upside-down morality, as found in Romans chapter 1. He loves redefining and devaluing the family, making us believe that we can make up what the family looks like as we go along, also in Romans 1. He loves lying to our young, confusing them about gender, sexuality, and good and evil. He loves to generate chaos in the mind. Now, over the next few months, as you watch the news of the day unfold, remember Satan's desire to produce chaos. This is what he designs. This is what he desires. 
The prince of the power of the air is what the Bible calls him. He'll be behind all kinds of chaos in the coming days and weeks, months and years in this world. It's not hard to imagine disputed elections or extreme pr proposals offered to remedy society's problems and the entrenchment of one side against another. And he loves it. Oh, he loves it. He does not need us to get along to destroy us. But notice what Jesus does in this story. He replaces the chaos with human flourishing. The boy will be delivered. The father will be overjoyed. The scribes will be silenced. And a bit of the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration is brought into the valley that day. You see, this is what Jesus wants to do in you and through you. He saved you so that he could keep saving you. He wants to take the chaotic and upside down parts of you and restore them to his original intention. He wants you to become an ambassador of the kingdom, bringing his order and straightforward truth to bear in your circle. When your coworkers gossip and complain, Jesus wants you to work for the good of your workplace. When your children are told lies about human sexuality, he wants to use you to show them and teach them the truth. When your friends and family strangle themselves with greed-induced debt, he wants you to live a life of hard work, generosity, and contentment. When others overrun and overcomplicate their lives with impossibly full schedules, he wants your life to be an example of Sabbath living in the midst of chaos. That's what Jesus does. He works to replace chaos with human flourishing. And he wants to do this in each one of our lives. Now, the second thing I want you to see in this story is that Jesus, number two, uses imperfect faith to accomplish his perfect work. He uses imperfect faith to accomplish his perfect work. Let's read on in the story together. Verse 19. And he answered them, Jesus now speaking, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, Jesus' response to this whole scene as we backtrack over that paragraph was one of sorrow. Notice there in verse 19, he cried out asking, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? In other words, Jesus was pained by the lack of faith 
in that generation. Now, this might have been a glimpse into how Jesus felt about everybody there that day, the father, the scribes, the disciples, the crowds. But it was also possibly that Jesus was grieved by the lack of faith in his own men. Uh, he's going to address it later in the passage. But regardless, Jesus was overcome with sorrow at the lack of faith in that scene. But I want you to see something, brothers and sisters. Jesus' grief at what he saw did not paralyze him. As he looked at the entire generation, he felt rather hopeless. Faithlessness abounded. He wondered, how long will I be with you? But rather than stand back and decry the big problems of the world and move on without doing anything, Jesus turned his attention to the father and the boy that were right there in front of him. He might not be able to, in that moment, solve the problems of the generation, but right then, in that moment, he could help this little family. So he said in verse 19, bring him, bring the boy to me. And I think Jesus stands out as a good example to us in this regard. You see, we live in a wild time, a generation where we have exposure to so many of the world's problems. You know, other generations previous to ours were often in the dark about the atrocities of the world. But we carry little devices in our pockets that keep us up to date on the chaos all around us. We might get discouraged and overwhelmed at what we see. That's why I love noticing how Jesus responded. He saw the big problems, absolutely, a faithless generation. But he also did the little things that would help this man and his son. At that moment, he did what he could. And so should we. Now, Jesus interviewed the father in the paragraph I just read to discover the gravity of the situation. You know, the father told him, just how bad his son's demonic possession had become. And the father concluded by saying that the demons were trying to, verse 22, destroy his son. And I'm sure you noticed it. The father blasted forth this request of Jesus. He said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, knowing what we know about Jesus, it's amazing to hear someone say to Jesus, if you can do anything. And we know Jesus is the creator, the sustainer of all things, the glorious God who became our savior. But this man, he's very honest with Jesus. He's saying, I don't know if you can, but if you can, help my son. Now this is interesting because in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, there was a leper that came to Jesus. He wondered if Jesus was willing to help him. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. In other words, the leper in Mark chapter 1 didn't doubt that Jesus could, but wondered if he wanted to help. The father, though, he thinks that Jesus wants to help, but wonders if he can. It's like he's saying, if you can, I know you would love to help my son. And I find that people often feel this way about God. They believe that he either cares but is powerless to help 
or is powerful to help, but doesn't care. As Christians, though, we look to the cross and realize that God is both all-powerful and all-loving, all-caring. He certainly can and does want to help, ultimately by bringing out the future restoration of all things for those who believe in him. Now, Jesus shot back to the man's request. That's why at the beginning of verse 23, Jesus said, if you can, he's quoting the father. And of course, Jesus can. But this man has been disillusioned by the failure of Jesus's disciples. So his hope in Jesus, it waned. Now, Jesus told the man that the problem did not lie in Jesus's inability, but in the quality of the man's faith. He said, all things are possible to him who believes. This is Jesus putting the responsibility squarely on the man's shoulders. The father, he needed to trust Jesus. He needed to believe Jesus. Now, in response, the man said one of the most human things in all of the Gospels. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. To me, this is real faith. You see, the man knew that his faith was not perfect. It's too often believers think that their faith needs to be of the superhuman quality. And it seems like there's no shortage of faith healers and miracle chasers who tell us that we must have bold, lion-like faith. But this man shows us that Jesus is only looking for humble, honest, mustard-sized, small faith. You see, Jesus uses imperfect faith to accomplish his perfect work. It isn't about faith's grandiosity but about the grandiosity of the one that we put our faith in. It wasn't about the father's great faith that day, but about Jesus. The man even asked Jesus to help him have greater faith when he said, help my unbelief. He knew that he needed Jesus's help, even help to believe in Jesus in the first place. You see, true faith is conscious of its smallness and inadequacy. True faith is not confident in the self, but hopes and looks to God for help. True faith throws itself on the mercy of God. True faith is desperate for God to move. And this father, in this moment, though his faith was weak and small, his faith was true and real. You know, perhaps you, like this man, have been disillusioned because you have placed your faith in people, just as he had placed his faith in the disciples, but they could not help his child. Get your eyes once again on Jesus. Place your faith in him. He cannot let you down. But let's close by looking at a third thing that Jesus did in this valley. Number three, he rejects self-sufficiency while looking for dependence on God. He rejects self-sufficiency while looking for dependence on God. Let's read together in verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked 
the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now I want you to notice first as we wrap up this episode that the boy seems to have gotten worse before Jesus delivered him. Satan would not give up his possession easily. He convulsed the boy. He threw the boy down. It came to the point where the crowd thought that the boy was actually dead. Now Jesus, he loves to save. And sometimes he will save us by allowing things to get worse before they get better. In the time of worsening, you must still believe, even with imperfect faith, in his ability and his desire to break through. Now, all of us have people that we're praying for, you know, hoping for God's salvation to come into their lives. And we often watch those people grow worse before they get better. Keep on trusting Jesus. Lean on him. Believe he is faithful. Gather with others and pray for those who you want to see God move. Trust him. Now, after delivering the boy, though, Jesus and his disciples, uh, they entered into the house there in verse 28. And the disciples asked Jesus privately a question. Why couldn't we cast out the demon? Now, as a reminder, at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already sent his disciples out two by two, all the way back in Mark chapter 6, where in their missionary work, they had power over the demonic realm. So they wonder here, why can't we cast out this demon? We did it before, why not now? Now Jesus responded by saying, this kind comes out by prayer. And many ancient New Testament manuscripts also include the word fasting. So you'd say, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Now, I don't think that when Jesus said this, what he was saying was, you know, you were able to do it before because those were lesser demons. Uh, but this is a serious kind of demon and you've got to really pray and really fast uh, for these demons. You know, I don't think this was his way of saying that there are trials or individuals or problems that require prayer and fasting while there are some that just don't. Instead, I think that Jesus was pointing out their new self-sufficiency. Their question was straightforward. Why could we not cast out the demon? They thought they could do it. They couldn't do it. Why? Jesus was trying to show them the error of self-sufficiency. They should not have trusted in their own strength. They forgot they were dependent on God for power. If they had been dependent, they would have been praying. Prayer would have been the evidence that they knew God needed to help them. You see, in one sense, a prayerless life is a prideful life. It's a way of living that thinks God has no help to offer and that you can get by 
without God's help, without God's power. But Jesus rejects self-sufficiency and looks for dependence on God. He wants us to be a dependent people. There's a story in the Old Testament that I think illustrates this so perfectly. When Israel was set free from Egypt, they began to wander in the wilderness. And one day, while they were traveling, they were attacked from behind by the Amalekites. Moses sent his servant Joshua down into the valley with warriors to defend Israel. But Moses went to the top of a nearby hill with his brother Aaron and a man named Hur. And Moses held the staff, the staff that God had given to him, in his hand. And he held it up in the air and he prayed. Whenever his hands were up in the air, the Israelite warriors in the valley would win the battle. And when his hands sank down, they began to lose the battle. Soon Aaron and Hur noticed this, and so they propped Moses' hands up when he became tired. I think Moses' raised hands are emblematic of a life of prayer, one that is continually dependent upon God for its success. This is what Jesus wants. He rejects self-sufficiency and looks for dependence on God. And his disciples down in this valley needed to learn it. And we need to learn it today. Let me conclude before taking communion with a few applications. Number one, consider your environments, your family, your church, and your workplace. And ask this question, where is the chaos and brokenness that you are meant to as God's image bearer in that space aid. You know, there is chaos somewhere in your world. Ask the Lord, what chaos are you wanting me to be a minister of reconciliation to? Number two, consider yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. In what areas of your physical, emotional, or spiritual self might Jesus want to restore you more than he already has. You know, what chaos in you, so to speak, is he wanting to rebuild? Number three, consider your faith. You know, the father needed to have faith. And ask yourself, is my faith alive and active or dull and lifeless? Is it generally moving in the direction of trust in God? Even if it's small, is that the direction I'm going in? And finally, number four, consider your prayer life. Does it depict dependence upon God? Is it preparing you in advance for the valleys that are sure to come?